Amen. You may be seated. And children, grades kindergarten to third grade, can go through those doors, and we've got a children and worship class for you that uh, will be just in that prayer room off the side, and they'll come back in at the end of the service. So if you've got kids with you who do not want to be with you, you can send them through that door. Well, good morning. Uh, this morning we continue our series, uh, Hazardous But Secure, which is taking us uh, through the book of Acts. And uh, I realized this week after talking to a couple people that not everyone realized that's what we're doing, but we are going through the book of Acts. It's not a coincidence that every week we're preaching out of Acts. Um, and this morning we get to a really famous passage. If you've grown up in the church, if you've been in a church, you know, for couple years or something like that, you've likely heard this passage referenced, if not in a sermon, in a Bible study small group or in a Christian book. And if you haven't, and you're new to all of this, after today, you will have heard a sermon on this, and for the rest of your life, you'll be like, oh yeah, that's somewhat familiar. So, uh, that's good news for you. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, the very end of that, and then into chapter 5. Uh, but before we get into that, uh, I want to talk about uh, a couple things, but the first thing is, I'd like to talk to you about, so one of my hobbies, I have many hobbies, many of which include reading, uh, and one of the things that I really enjoy reading is psychologists. I don't know why, I just do. I uh, have a few that I follow, and one of them is this guy named Adam Grant. And last year, in his book called Give and Take, he studied American workplaces and said, you know, here are a couple different types of people. One is a giver. This is someone who they look proactively for how can I lend my efforts, my skill, my help to other people in the workplace. And they don't do it with any expectation of something in return. Then he said there's also the taker, someone who is always looking to get a favor from other people, but never looking to do one in return. Then he said the most common is what's called a matcher, meaning uh, if you do them a favor, they will feel the need to do you a favor, or if they do you a favor, they will expect a favor in return, and they kind of keep a mental tally of the scales and make sure it's balanced. And so he said, you know, what I really wanted to look at is these givers, these people who are willing to give their energy, their time, uh, their services to their coworkers with no expectation of anything in return. And so he looked at these givers in the fields of sales, engineering, customer service, and medical school. And he found that the givers are in the bottom of every performance bracket for medical school, sales, customer service, and engineering. And uh, he said, you know, the most disturbing thing about that is what that suggests is that when you're picking a doctor, you should pick the doctor who went to medical school with the intention to help no one. Because if he was a giver, he was not a very good doctor in medical school. Um, or at least so the data seems. But... The problem is, he was looking at that and he said, well, if the givers are at the bottom, it must be takers at the top. And it actually wasn't. When he looked at it, he was like, well, givers are actually the lowest for sales, engineering, customer service, and medical school, but they are also the highest. And so what do you do with that? Well, he's a psychologist who explains it. And he said, basically, the only difference here is the environment they're in. Some environments are fostered where givers can thrive and succeed and do well, and other places punish people who are givers. And, and that's pretty much where he leaves it. And so, But what he taps into, though, is that we all have this desire 
for that kind of community living, that kind of reciprocity where uh, we can give to other people, other people give to us without worrying about having to even the score and all of this stuff. And he is able to label it, he's able to diagnose it, but he doesn't actually know how to fix it other than be more like a giver. Hire more givers, don't hire takers. That's his really only his his only advice. And so what we're going to get to this morning is that every human who's ever lived is designed for deep and meaningful life in community. But in our brokenness, we undermine our own deepest longing. I'll say it another way. You are your own biggest obstacle for your big, your deepest longing for deep and meaningful community in the life of other people. Now, I don't mean to be unkind. I don't know all of you that well, but I do know, you know what the scripture is teaching us here and what I experience in my own life. But what we'll see in scripture here is that the grace of God is not only to buy eternal salvation for people, but it is to unite us right now as a church with deep and meaningful community life. And we're going to see that in the scripture this morning. And with that, I will encourage you to turn to page 912 in your pew Bibles. We're going to be there for a little bit. So if you are uh, willing to read along, I'd encourage you to pick it up. If not, it will be on the screens and I will read it to you. And while you're turning to page 912, I will open us in prayer. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you also for the gift of your spirit, which brings that word to life for us uh, that we can see and hear and understand. And more importantly, that we can apply it to our lives and that we can be transformed into the people uh, that your word and your spirit are shaping us to become. We ask now that you would uh, open this to us and that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Barnabas sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it to the, at the apostles' feet. Now in chapter 5. Uh, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose up and wrapped him up and carried uh, carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out 
and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all of those who heard of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Now, this is not the most cheerful ending to a passage, right? But it's a great passage to talk about offering, which comes after the sermon, by the way. It actually isn't. I mean, it is and it isn't. But it's what's underneath this passage that's also what's underneath why we give and how we give to the church. And I promise uh, that's not a threat in chapter 5 to you, uh, but it is a cautionary tale. But here's what we don't want to do. So chapter 5 is so problematic for so many of us that we want to jump right to there and talk about it. In fact, I read a couple commentaries this week, and one of them, he had the exact same passage I do, Acts 4.32 to 5.11, and he skipped over all of chapter 4, that section there, that was all celebratory and good, and just got down to the problems. So we don't want to do that, right? We want to celebrate where the text celebrates, and we want to be challenged where the text challenges. And so I'm going to uh, go through it all again uh, and just comment a little bit on what's going on here, and then I'm going to sum it up in three points because that's a sermon and that's what we do. Um, but if we look back in chapter 4, verse 32, it says this, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And so here's what we want to see. What I want you to see from that is, one, that I mean, radical... Unity, which is what we have here, builds community and vice versa. But the amazing thing here, this is the part that makes everyone scratch their head, is that all of this that's going on was voluntary. The apostles didn't say, you better go sell that extra field you have and bring all of that money into the church. All they did was make the needs known, and people said, well, I have, you know, this extra field is in my possession, so I'll just sell that and they can have that money. And... Normally, you know, we see that and we say, oh, that's great. Uh, but when humans try to do that, apart from Jesus, apart from the gospel, apart from Christ, the only way we can think to get this level of generosity is to force it out of people. But there's no coercion here. This is all voluntary action from people who have been impacted by the gospel. In fact, one commentator sums it up like this. He says, there is no transfer of ownership, no control of production or of income, No requirements to surrender one's property to the community. It is just radical generosity. And so we have to say, well, where does this radical generosity come from? And, you know, on one hand, how do we get it? Some of you are scared of it. Uh, And so for you, the question is, how do you not be scared of it? And then how do you get it? Um, And we're going to see that as we keep going in the text. So, uh, and then in the next verse, it says, and with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Now, what I want you to see in that verse is the power that is fueling all of this generosity, all of this deep and meaningful community, is the testimony of the the resurrection of Jesus from the apostles. Now, some people will read that incorrectly and think that All of the power rested in the apostles, but that's not what the text says. It's in the apostles' message. So the only thing distinct about what's happening here is not that Peter is so wonderful and powerful that he can uh, convince people to sell their property and give it away for free. It's actually the power of what is being said, which is good news for us because we have the same gospel. 
The same power that the apostles were preaching from is available to each and every Christian. In fact, not only is it available, we are responsible for proclaiming that message. Every morning, when, every Sunday morning when we gather and then throughout the week uh, as we go about our lives, we have that same power to proclaim our testimony of Jesus' death and resurrection, which is what fuels this community and, uh, and this generosity. And then as you keep going in the text, you see just more and more examples uh, there was not a needy person among them. It's not because they were really gifted at driving out needy people, by the way. What they're actually doing is turning needy people into non-needy people, which is uh, baffling to the people who are witnessing this from the outside looking in. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and was distributed to each as any had need. And so Christians share everything in common. But here's the key. And this is what separates this from any other religious or political system that tries to help people or serve people, and not that all of them are even bad, but this is what sets them apart, is these Christians are recognizing that none of the stuff they are in possession of belongs to them. They're saying, everything that is mine, everything that's in my possession is actually God's. And so if someone else has need of it, it's theirs. And that's that's totally different. Now, in other ancient religions and even in modern, some modern religions, people would give money or offerings or tithes to their gods in order to win them over or to appease them or to keep them happy or try to win them on their side. They're like, I got a big prayer request coming up, so I better keep them happy and give some more money here, um, transferring what I have to God's possession. But the Christians said, no, everything I have is already God's possession. So, you know, just redistributing you what what already belongs to God. None of it is mine. And so when none of it is yours, you're free to give it away generously. And so the gospel works because we have been saved by no effort of our own. And through Jesus, we have been given everything we need or could ever want. And therefore, we don't need to cling to anything we have other than God. So if everything you have has come from God and Jesus' death on the cross, then there's no reason for you to cling to anything other than that in order to have your needs met. And now a lot of people say, yeah, yeah, that's great. That's my spiritual needs. Uh, you know, gets my, you know, saves my soul, forgives my sins, whatever. But I got other needs too. But that's actually what's happening here. It's not just spiritual needs being fulfilled. These are physical and emotional needs. And by the way, when people are without food or uh, or shelter, you know, we would define that for the most part as a physical problem, but I don't think anyone who's ever lived or experienced that would tell you that it's merely a physical problem. That's physical, that's emotion, that's, you know, psychological problems, uh, and that's a spiritual problem, and Jesus, through his church, seeks to fulfill all of that, seeks to right all of those wrongs. And so this is one of those passages where you read about these Christians, who've been Christians for about two chapters, by the way, and this is one where I have to ask a really hard question of myself. And you look at this and you just say, am I really a Christian? Now, let me just offer a caveat here. That's a question that if you ask yourself that every day or every week, you're going to go crazy. So don't do that. It's not healthy. Because our assurance of faith is in Jesus Christ and in his death and resurrection. However, if you never ask yourself that, it's a good Reminder, as you're going through a text like this and you say, this is what people live like after experiencing Jesus. I claim to have experienced Jesus. Am I living that way? Now, some people 
will have these radical transformations where they came to Jesus five hours ago and they're selling off property and giving it to the poor. And others of us, it's more of a long, slow arc. And so the question is whether you've been a Christian for five days or 50 years, you have to look back at the, you know, your past however long since you've encountered Jesus and say, what is the trajectory? You know, am I moving more towards someone in this passage or do I look, do I treat my possessions, my money more or less like the people in the culture around me? Am I moving more in the direction of people around me in the culture who don't know Jesus? Or am I looking more and more each day, every year, on the long, slow arc of becoming one of these people who sees nothing as theirs and everything as God's and therefore can afford to be generous? In fact, they can't afford not to be generous because they realize what they've been given. So I don't want to torture you with that question, but I do think it is helpful to just think about that every once in a while when you read these really... Now, the other thing you should note, it's the reason this got written down in scripture is because this was exceptional. This is the peak example of what Christian living looks like. This wasn't the normal experience. This is what should be normal, but this is not what was happening with everyone who came to Jesus ever for the 2000 year history of the church. Luke is writing this down saying, this is the dream. You know, this is what we're aiming for. This is what Christ purchased for us. And this is what we need to be challenged to live into. And so, uh, that's chapter 4, and then we move straight into chapter 5. And by the way, chapter 4 ends with uh, a man named Barnabas who sold a field and gave all of the proceeds of that field, laid it at the apostles' feet. Luke includes a lot of detail about Barnabas because Barnabas is going to become a key character later in the book of Acts. But then we move into chapter 5, and we see a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira, and they, like Barnabas, sell a field and give proceeds to the church, but they are struck dead for it. Now, what's the difference? Now, if I really wanted to try to get you to tithe a lot after the sermon, I'd tell you it's because they held back some of their money. But that actually isn't what the scripture is objecting to here. Ananias and his wife sell property like Barnabas, bring it at the apostles' feet. Barnabas sold his, prop- his property, gave all of the money to the church as because he felt God's call to be generous. Ananias and Sapphira sold their property and pretended to give it all to the church while keeping back some for themselves because they wanted to appear generous. Do you see the chasm of difference there between actually being generous and wanting to appear generous? And that can happen to us with any spiritual discipline, any fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. We see the appeal of those things and we think it would be great if other people saw me that way. But guess what would be actually good for other people if you actually were that way? It doesn't do anyone any good for you to appear to be loving, peaceful, patient, kind, and, and joyful. It actually, you, to actually become that way is what's helpful. And one commentator, uh, really summed it up. He said, their sin was not in holding back some of the funds, but in the pretense and the hypocrisy that they lied to the church. They told the church, this is all of the money that we got when they knew they were holding it back. Ananias does that. He is struck dead. His wife comes in a few hours later. Peter even gives her a chance to come clean, says, is this how much you sold the land for? And she says, yeah, that's it. And then she is struck dead as well. And this is, uh, if I was preaching on just these 11 verses that the title of the sermon would be called Killer Hypocrisy. It's literally fatal hypocrisy here. because, And this is how much God cares about preserving the integrity of his church. 
This is in the early formative days. Luckily, we are not all held to that standard where we're struck dead immediately for hypocrisy or we would really be struggling with church attendance numbers uh, as a nation and as a uh, global movement. Uh, but we see it dealt with swiftly and severely in this chapter and something we uh, ought to take seriously, we ought to learn from. And the most important thing to learn here is that not not that you have to give everything you have ever gotten or ever earned from anything back to the Lord, but don't lie about it. You know, the only reason to lie about it is for selfish gain, and the only reason to give it away is to be oriented toward the wellness of others. And so you can't, you know, you can't be both others-oriented and self-oriented, selfishly oriented. And so the call, the call for the Christian is to be others-oriented with all of life, and that includes our material possessions. Now I've got my three points that I want to give you. And the first is this, and I think this kind of sums it up all throughout, but the community, the mutual care and support, the community that we all desire is very simple, but very difficult. And do you understand the difference? It's simple, it's easy to understand, but it's extremely difficult to achieve. Many of us are so focused, so aware of our own needs for deep community that we neglect the price of that community. And the price of it is this. I mean, so there are four things that mark community life uh, in chapter 4, starting in verse 32. It says there are four things here that mark the Christian community at its peak, everything going well. And the first is they were unified in mind and heart. Now, that's really simple. We all know what that means. Does anyone not know what it means to be unified in mind and heart? Okay, everyone understands that. Has anyone ever attempted to be unified in mind and heart with one other person for one hour? Just an hour. Have you tried to do it with an entire congregation of people for an entire life? So it's simple to understand. It's very difficult to achieve. But that's one of the marks. The second mark is that they're sharing their possessions which, of course, they didn't see as their possessions. The third was the power and witness of the apostles, which we already talked about, the power of their message, and fourth, of the grace of God, which rested upon them. All of those things are simple. They're easy to understand. They're even technically easy to know how to go about doing it, but it's very difficult to take that step into doing it. One might even say it is hazardous but secure. And so when we find ourselves lacking meaningful unity or deep community, we have to ask ourselves this question. This is the one you need to ask yourself. Am I looking to be in a community or am I looking to be a consumer? Am I looking to God and other people only for what I can get out of them or am I looking to be an active participant in the life of a community? And the easiest way to tell that is, I mean, you can even just look at your prayer life. Are you praying to God for opportunities to engage with other people, how to serve other people, or do you only bring him a list of your needs and say, you know, I'm praying to you to fulfill my needs uh, so that I can sit back and have all of my needs felt. And by the way, praying for community to enter your life without acting on it is the craziest thing you can possibly pray for. Because guess what you have to do in order to be in community? Community can't passively come happen to you. You have to be actively participating in it. That's in the definition of community. 
So if you find yourself lacking that type of community in your life, you can pray for it. You should pray for it. But you should also pray for opportunities to be actively engaging. You should be aware and be looking for those opportunities as they present themselves, and they will. And so while the formula for community is simple, it isn't easy. And the key is this. If we focus primarily on our own needs, we will never get the community we desire. If you are only concerned about your own need for community, you will never achieve community in a meaningful way. However, if you focus on contributing to a part of a community and contributing to the life of a community, not only will your need for community be met, but uh, you kind of get it all. Your needs will be met and you will have community without, you know, being self-serving. And so if you're others-oriented and you seek to engage and actually participate, you get community thrown in. And if you don't want to do that and you're praying for community, you miss both. And so the other question, which I, I thought was an interesting one, someone brought up. They said, okay, well, if all of this stuff that we have is God's anyway, and God wants everyone to have all these things and has promised it to them, then why does he pile it all up in a few people and expect them to give it? Why doesn't God just divvy out all of these resources from the beginning and just have everyone be on equal footing? It's a fair question, right? But here's the good news. We get to be active participants in what God is doing. God is going to bless all the peoples of the earth. He says that back in Genesis 12. But what was his mechanism for doing that? He says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you and your family so that, not so you can sit around and feel blessed, but so that you can go be a blessing, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so he's going to bless the many by blessing the few. So when you receive a blessing, when you receive anything from God, it is not for you, it is for those around you. And that's what it means to be salt and light, if you've heard those words used around here before. And so that's actually the good news, and that's really the application of, of this. What do you do with blessings when you get them? It's you be fruitful, you multiply, you serve others, you bless others with the blessings you've received. And so the second thing I'll point out is that the community that we all desire, that every human longs for, to you know, be in an environment of givers where givers thrive, that type of mutual reciprocity, that type of community that we desire also appeals to the world, but it is only available at its deepest level through Jesus. So it's appealing to the world because everyone at some level is in touch with that need. And I found this from a commentator. I found this very interesting because as you know, as you may or may not know, the New Testament is written in Greek. Now the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. The New Testament is written in Greek and the Christian movement is sort of moving into the theater of Greece and the Greeks. And he says this, the Greeks in that day shared a common myth that in primitive times people lived in an ideal state in which there was no ownership but everything was held in common. And Plato, in his Republic, envisioned uh, envisioned his Republic as being one devoid of all private ownership. It is doubtful that such a utopian ideal was ever realized among the Greeks, but for some of the Greeks, communal ownership was a part, a major part of their dream of a golden age. And so what he's saying is the ancient Greeks, they had this dream of man, what if we just all shared everything in common and no one really claimed ownership of anything and everyone had their needs met and this is their dream, this is their ideal, this is what the good life is to the Greeks and they were never able to achieve it and then this weird pocket of Christians shoot up in their midst and they're doing it. 
They're living the Greek dream, and it's on display for the world to see that this deep community, they have, in sense, this right desire that this is how people should be living, but they can't figure out how to get there. And as soon as these people, who are Greeks, some of them, encounter Jesus, they're living into that life. And the, the lesson here for us is that there are many people in our culture who do not follow Jesus, but they do recognize their need for deep community, their need for this meaningful unity. And seeing it on display is a great testimony to the world. It demonstrates in the most practical way what Jesus offers to the world. So the, the third thing I want to point out here, so community that we desire appeals to the world, but is only available through Christ, and that community we desire is simple but not easy. Third thing is this, the community that we requires that we desire requires deep unity not just the desire for unity and not just the appearance of unity. We don't want to be like Ananias and Sapphira who simply want to appear like they're doing the right things. We need to be actually doing the right things in order to get the level of community that is promised here. Now, the challenge is that in the 21st world of social media, most of us, I know myself included, have become quite skilled in the idea of image control. We get to carefully curate which pictures, which thoughts, which interests are presented to other people and represent us to the world. We spend less face time with people statistically, not talking about the app, by the way, less human face-to-face time uh, with other people than at any point in recent history. Yet, we spend more time interacting, but it's a heavily curated interaction. And so we get this great opportunity for hypocrisy. We get uh, to, to tell other people what they know about us. And Ananias and Sapphira suffer from the difference between wanting to be generous and wanting to feel generous. And so the question is, do we suffer the same dilemma? Now, whether it's generosity, whether it's the fruit of the Spirit, whether it's empathy, whether it's community, uh, do we want the feeling of being generous, of being empathetic, of being a community without experiencing actual generosity, without experiencing actual empathy toward another person, without actually living and being an active participant in community? Do we want that? And then the question is, for most of us, yes, to some extent. We all want the ideal more than we're able to live into the ideal. So then how do we get past selfishness and consumerism and get to the right desires? And I've got another answer in my conclusion, but the, the simplest answer I can give you, once again, not the easiest, but the simplest I can give you is to look to Jesus. The only way to really get into generosity, to get into meaningful community, is an understanding that Jesus has died for you, and you realize that your deepest needs have been met, not will be met, have been, past tense, met in Jesus. This will allow you to look at others Not to have your needs met, but to free them in a way that you have been freed. And out of this freedom comes generosity, comes meaningful relationships, comes a deeper sense of community. And so I want to close, and I've got uh, a longer quote, but I think it's very worth reading. But the one final thing I just want to throw out here for you is a lot of times when I've heard Acts 4 reference like this, people say, oh, it's just so simple. Why can't we just do that? It was so perfect. This is the golden age of the church. First of all, if it's the golden age of the church, that's really pitiful because it's only five verses, and then there's a problem. And I will point out to you, you know, was it perfect? No, it wasn't perfect because you read a couple of chapters later, and they appoint deacons because some people were being neglected in, the, in all of these fulfilling needs. But also, did it last? No, 
The rest of the New Testament is Paul writing letters to this church fixing it. And so it's we celebrate what can be celebrated. There's a lot of good here. We see a great snippet of Christian community. This is what we're all designed for. We know in our deepest, in our heart of hearts, this is what we were made to live into, but we can't quite pull it off on our own. And even those of us who are living into life, we're following after Jesus, trying so hard to get this, we're fighting against uh, so many forces pulling us in other directions. And so I'm going to close here with, um, uh, it's from a man named Jamar Tisby. And if you've not heard of Jamar Tisby, he's an incredibly gifted writer and speaker. Uh, He's part of what's called the Witness Black Christian Collective, formerly known as the Reformed African American Network. He has a podcast called Pass the Mic. Uh, he's got a slew of books that are all incredible uh, and challenging, and um, I've been going through a few of those. But he wrote a blog article called, Why Is It So Hard to Find Christian Community? I'm going to read to you a couple quotes from him here. He says this, he says, Seldom are we called upon as individuals, families, and small communities to invest in each other. Add to that our own sin uh, into the mix of these challenges, and it's easy to become discouraged. The old way of shallow relationships and superficial familiarity looks far more appealing. Experiencing authentic Christian community isn't about adding more programs and events. It's about confronting our own sin and the culture around us. I see now that we're combating two deeply embedded cultures as we attempt to be part of real community. And he says it this way. The first culture that we're fighting against is church culture. He says it, in our churches, we, many of us are consumer Christians. And he quotes, uh, to quote him, he says, the structure of some churches trains us to receive much, but give little. And if that's where you are, now, you could blame the church for that, but if you're the one being the consumer, then the simplest way to fix that is to stop. You know, just because someone's offering you that doesn't mean you have to take it. But he says, the structure of some churches trains us to receive much and give little. And the second culture, he says, we're, pushing against when we try to live this way is American culture. And he gives this great example. He said he doesn't go to Walmart very often, but the last time he went, he walked in the door and he saw this little kiddie pool, like you know, the inflatable ones that you put in the backyard and fill it with the hose and uh, your kids can go play in the water. And he was said, I was so tempted to buy that because I thought to myself, if I get this, I could put it in the backyard fill it with water, and my kids can go play in the water, and then I don't have to take them to the community pool 30 yards away and interact with other people. And when I read that, I thought, oh my gosh, that is so painfully true. It's so tempting to take the the route where we don't have to be with other people. It's easier to be alone. And uh, that's a difficult truth uh, and so he says, you know, fences divide us and secure our privacy, but the gospel tears down barriers. That's a difficult truth to live out when we isolate ourselves from people and barricade ourselves in a bubble of selfish convenience. And one of my favorite philosophers, Charles Taylor, is a Canadian philosopher. He just observed that every time, starting after World War II, every time a new technology is invented, it cuts some aspect of community out of our lives. And so he said, you know, for example, when the washing machine was invented, the way wash was done before that was you would wash in your backyards, you'd do it at the same time as your neighbors, you'd be conversing the whole time, building relationship for a few hours, and then you hang it on the lines and you go out and check on it, and that was building community. And then as soon as you put a basement uh, machine in your basement, you'd throw some laundry in there, turn it on, go watch some TV, 
and you've lost some community. He said, you know, when the refrigerator was invented, invented, you don't need to go to the market as often, which is a human interaction. So he said, just every technology we introduce is cutting some dimension of relationship out of our lives, which means I'm not telling you that you should, you know, unplug your refrigerator and throw away your washing machine. I'm just telling you that the natural pull of our world will pull you away from other people. And so it takes a deliberate effort to interact with other people in this way and to really get past the superficial, get past the appearance of community and get into real deep and meaningful community. And so while that may sound hard, he says, he concludes by saying this. He says, uh, we're combating American culture, church culture, and our own sin. It's going to be hard, but Christ is building his church and he's the cornerstone. He will not be moved. He will not be shaken, and neither will we. Will you please join us in prayer?